Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. What has been your experience in the national park system this year? Have you found lots of crowds, or has your experience been more enjoyable because you haven't encountered scores of other visitors milling about? Unfortunately, those less crowded spots might be harder to find this year. Just look at Cape Hatteras National Seashore on the Outer Banks of North Carolina. Through the first six months of 2021, the seashore has seen a 26% increase in visitors over the numbers counted back in 2002. And that was the record-setting year for visitation at Cape Hatteras. And Cape Hatteras is by no means alone in counting record numbers of visitors this year. This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. Crowding in the national park system is not new. But is it threatening the integrity of the parks, their natural resources, and how you experience them? In today's show, we're going to discuss those questions with Kristen Brengel of the National Parks Conservation Association and Phil Francis of the Coalition to Protect America's National Parks. And we'll also discuss why the National Park Service still is without a Senate-confirmed director. We'll be back in a minute with those topics. Nova Scotia, 8,000 miles of coastline dotted with colorful fishing villages, quaint coastal towns, and an abundance of scenic natural beauty. Home to two national parks, Cape Breton Highlands and Kejimakujik. Spend your nights under a canopy of twinkling stars. Spend your days exploring trails, beaches, historical waterways, and tons of cultural and recreational experiences. Visit NovaScotia.com today to start planning your natural getaway. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It's also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people, inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. Western National Parks Association is a nonprofit education partner of the National Park Service. WNPA supports parks across the West developing products, services, and programs that enhance the visitor experience, understanding, and appreciation of national parks. Learn more at WNPA.org. Do you love one-click shopping? With our partner, Interior Federal Credit Union, you can earn rewards just by making online purchases. You're missing out on rewards points if you're not using their Visa credit and or debit card. By adding these cards to your online shopping cart with Amazon, Walmart, or other shopping retailers, you can earn a point for every dollar you spend. Binge watching a lot with streaming services like Netflix and Hulu? Use their card for recurring payments to earn points as well. Visit their website, interiorfcu.org, and read their blog for more details and how to apply. It has been 54 months since the National Park Service had a Senate-confirmed director. The Biden administration has been in office for six months, and it still has not nominated a director for the National Park Service. Meanwhile, many parks are crowded with visitors. Overcrowded, in some opinions. Visit Yellowstone, Zion, Grand Canyon, Great Smoky, and many other national parks this crowded summer, and you can see firsthand how the crowds are impacting not just the natural resources in these special places, but literally stomping on the national park experience. 
Take a look around the system and you'll see that it's not just the brand name parks that are overcrowded. Big South Fork National River and Recreation Area in Kentucky and Tennessee counted 772,625 visitors in 2020, an increase of nearly 25,000 from 2019. Assateague Island National Seashore in Maryland and Virginia tallied almost 2.5 million visitors last year during the COVID pandemic, a jump of 137,124 from the previous year. Amistad National Recreation Area in Texas also saw an increase. Cape Hatteras National Seashore has seen its busiest six months since 2002. Cedar Breaks National Monument in Utah welcomed 845,867 visitors last year, more than 260,000 people that visited the spectacular monument in 2019. This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. To discuss these two issues, the lack of a Senate-confirmed Park Service director, and what seems to be overcrowding in the parks, we've asked Kristen Bringle from the National Parks Conservation Association and Phil Francis from the Coalition to Protect America's National Parks to share their thoughts. Welcome back to The Traveler. Thanks for having us, Kurt. Let's start with the crowding in the park system. Back in 1985, the deputy superintendent for Grand Teton National Park told me the parks were being loved to death. That year saw almost 252 million recreational visits to the national park system. In 2019, before COVID arrived, the park system counted 327.5 million visitors. Now, those numbers are soft, and there were more units in the park system in 2019 than in 1985. But is it valid to say that the park system can be crowded and even overcrowded at times, particularly when you look where people are congregating and the decline in National Park Service employees to manage those people? You know, parks are places of all of these scenic wonders and and cultural heritage. And what we know and how the road systems and parks were designed was to get people to the things that they want to see in addition to wonderful trails and and those types of things. But typically, I think what we find with national park visitors is that they want to see certain features in a park. It's part part of their bucket list. So if you're going to go to Yellowstone, you want to watch Old Faithful go off. You want to see the bison herd. You want to see wolves. You go to arches. You want to see delicate arch. And the list goes on right, of, of going to see El Capitan in, in Yosemite. So folks have these lists of features that they want to see, and the Park Service, in many cases, the staff have to manage toward those expectations that a lot of people have. In other parks, as you know, it's sort of a managed visit, like the Statue of Liberty. You get there, you climb the staircase, you get to the top, you come back down, and then you go off to Ellis Island afterwards. So in some cases, the visit is very defined for you already because of the type of space that exists in the location. But in other cases, it's the sites that people want to see. And so how do we make sure that folks have a great visit in these places and the resources remain protected? And so when you think about crowding and you think about, you know, people are going to see these specific things, We have to think through and support the park service in ways to to manage all the folks that are coming in. And as you know, being in Utah, Kurt, you know, in some cases, places like Arches have a very defined road system that can get very clogged up quickly. 
And so that means that after a certain while, cars aren't going to move at all if you have too many of them in the park. And so things like reservation systems and timed entry become an important tool that the park service needs to look at in order to manage that much visitation. But there's no doubt when you look at the numbers that visitation to parks is growing. It's not every park, but it's a lot of them. And we need to manage for not just the volume of use, but the experience and whether or not we're protecting the very resources that people are enjoying in the parks. So what are you hearing? I mean, you've got you've got a network across the country and a lot of park service uh, retirees and probably park service employees that you can turn to and say, how, how how is the crowding situation in your park? What are you hearing? You know, back in the... Uh... 1978, I went to a training course with the National Park Service, and we were talking about loving the parks to death in 1978. And not much has changed. And I think managing the parks for crowds the size that they're seeing now is extremely difficult because of the lack of staff. I was uh, in Grand Tetons a couple of weeks ago, and I was shocked at the number of people that were there. Uh, people using e-bikes on the trails. Some people just really, uh, I guess, had one of the bigger e-bikes and were able to go really, really fast, mixed with hikers and bikers. I was down at Jenny Lake, and there were people everywhere. Uh, bears were in the backcountry. There was a report as we were hiking this trail that there was a grizzly bear with two cubs. Of course, it was a brown bear, a black bear that was brown with the two cubs. But it was... Uh, it was not a place that day that you could enjoy peace and solitude, which is one of the things that's important when you visit national parks. No, absolutely. That national park experience that I like to say from time to time, I mean, it's, I don't think standing with thousands of people watching Old Faithful go off shoulder to shoulder is, is that national park experience, is it? Yeah, no, I don't think it is either. Um, but, you know, some surveys have indicated that people have become accustomed to that. And that it's okay with them. For example, in Cage Cove and the Smokies, which is the most visited national park unit, or no, excuse me, the most visited national park in the country, so it can take three hours to go around the Cage Cove Loop, which is an 11-mile trail, uh, a one-way road. Uh, we did a survey years ago to see if that was okay with people, and 82% of them said it was. And so, you know, the, I think the expectations may be changing by some of the visitors, which is going to make the management of the parks even more difficult. I saw just yesterday an, an email that talked about another site in Cage Cove, which has been overwhelmed by visitors for years, uh, Laurel Falls, and they're proposing to charge a $14, $14 uh, parking fee uh, at Laurel Falls. And what I think is a desperate effort to try to control the crowds. So, and, and we've often talked, as you know, that parks are for everyone. Uh, all of the Americans own our national parks and that we shouldn't price people out. But in looking at this management question, it is extremely difficult. You know, we have, as you mentioned, Kurt, there are fewer people. So how do we manage more people Keep the parks open for all of the citizens of the U.S. and also foreign visitors. You know, at the at the all at the same time, it's a, quite a difficult situation we find ourselves in in the National Park Service. 
I went to my very first park, which was Kings Mountain National Military Park, on Monday of this week. And it's a small park that usually has visitors of about oh, 45,000 people that actually walk in the door. It was closed. Well, it wasn't closed. There was no staff on. And they said on Mondays and Tuesdays there would be no visitor services. So at a time when, you know, record visitation is occurring across the park, at a time when it's the most visited time of the year in July, this park didn't have enough staff, apparently, to keep their doors open. So uh, it's going to be quite a challenge moving forward. Uh, and a lot of different people are going to have to be part of this solution, and it will be much larger than just the National Park Service. Phil, I, I want to go back to that survey that you were talking about and how I think you said 82% said they had a great time at Cades Cove. You know, Yellowstone has an annual survey of readership or, or visitors, and, you know, they come back with, you know, satisfaction, you know, 90, 95% had a great time. And I wonder, you know, if you're going to Yellowstone for the one time in your life, you're going to see Old Faithful, you're going to try and see some some bison and some wolves, as Kristen mentioned. And so if you see those things, yeah, you had a great time. You didn't rank it next to the crowds because you didn't necessarily focus on the crowds. You focused on the natural resources there at the park. You know, and if I'd be curious on the people they surveyed, how many times they visited, whether it was Cades Cove or, or Old Faithful or the uh, Yosemite Valley. I'd be curious to know if, if they know how many times those individuals who said they had a great time had visited the park. It's funny that you say that, Kurt, because I was, um, I mean, we see the same trends, right, is that people get so excited to be in the park and to see the features that um, it's a once-in-a-lifetime experience and they cherish it. and. I've been to Yellowstone, I can't even tell you how many times, and I still get excited when I see the geysers go off. But I think one of the things that I did before we got on this call was I looked at um, TripAdvisor. And I specifically looked for the difference between people's comments on, you know, enjoying the park itself and the natural features or the cultural features and the traffic at the entrance or the traffic through each park. And I looked at Cades Cove. I looked at Yosemite. I looked at Arches. And what's interesting about it is that I think people do separate out the difference between waiting at the entrance gates for some of these places and waiting in a long line of traffic to travel down the road through Cades Cove. And I think there is a difference in people's minds between getting to see these extraordinary places and the scenery and the actual practical being in the car and sitting there for four hours. And people are starting to register that they're having a miserable time sitting in their car all the time. And so yeah. I, do, I do think there's sort of a separation between the excitement of being there and seeing the special place that it is and the work that it takes to get there. And I think people are, st we're starting to see cracks and we're starting to see people actually register their unhappiness with with waiting on a long line of traffic. And I, I think one of the things that we've seen in Yosemite specifically is that they have now day use passes. And folks are reporting that their experience in Yosemite this summer has been way more pleasant than previously. And that's good data to know that people who were prior visitors to that specific national park 
had a bad experience with traffic in the valley and now feel like the experience is way better. That's what signals to a park manager and advocacy groups like ours that these things can work, these systems can work, but what do you need to do in order to get there? You need a plan. Many parks don't have a comprehensive plan on how to move visitors around, and that is a huge issue. Like, think about it. How many parks have actually done plans? Rocky Mountain has a carrying capacity that was done before COVID, and Acadia has just finished up their visitor use plan, but not many parks have these comprehensive plans. So what you're, what you're getting is sort of what Phil was saying was this Band-Aid approach where the parks are trying to manage for certain situations and they come up with using fees as tools. Is that the right approach? Who knows? But that's why you have to look comprehensively at the park, see where people are going, and then figure out if there's another way to move them around. But when I hear stuff like what Phil's talking about and consideration of a $14 fee for parking, that strikes me as a Band-Aid approach. So how do we solve it for 423 units? And of course, the crowding varies across across the park system. But but you know, Phil and I were talking about this earlier in the week, and uh, I took some time the other day to to go through the um, the visitor statistics compiled by the Park Service. And yeah, I was pretty surprised that it's not just the name brand parks that are seeing quite a quite a big increase in visitation. And and of course, I think we have to be clear that you know, when we say parks are being loved to death, we're, we're largely talking about the, the front country because, you know, it, it continues today as it probably did um, in the last century that if you go a, a quarter mile off the paved road, you'll, you'll enjoy solitude in the parks and you won't see some of the resource damage that you see in the front country areas. But it goes back to, you know, how do we come up with plans for 423 units of the park system? Is there a, a, a one size fits all or one approach that fits all? No. <laughs> I think there are many different approaches. I, you know, way back uh, years ago, decades ago, it talked about going to visit your lesser-known parks, the parks that weren't these iconic parks. But And then there was also discussion about, well, visit the state parks, which is a great idea, except the state parks are being slammed, too. And how about your city parks? I mean, there is a great demand, I think, for these outdoor places. Uh, whether they're historic or cultural or natural areas, I think there is a huge demand for a place for people to go to. And unfortunately, funding is a huge challenge in order to provide that capacity and to implement those, to first create the plan and then implement the plan. We were looking at it uh, as an alternative for Cage Cove years ago. Uh, we even considered a monorail. Of course, it was rejected, and it had no chance to begin with. But, but we looked at transportation systems like at Zion. Uh, we actually flew out to Zion to look at their transportation system, and we were quite impressed. But they're expensive to operate and to purchase. The capital investment is high. Staffing is high. And then, as I just noticed not long ago, that they were having to replace that uh, system because those vehicles are getting old and worn. So we're going to have to invest more to make a big difference. And we're going and to do the plans is going to require more capacity on the National Park Service's point. You know, 
because they just, you know, the Denver Service Center is down and a number of employees have helped do a planning and contracting out for A&E firms, you know, it costs a lot of money. So it's going to take a lot of time and a lot of effort and a lot of money and a lot of support. One more thing I would like to just throw out here, and I'd like to hear what you two have to say, and that is, you know, a lot of communities expect to see increases every year. That's sort of their bread and butter. They don't want visitation to be the same. They certainly don't want visitation to go down. So more and more advertising and more and more uh, effort is being made to bring more people to these parks. Well, let me let me say two two things on that, Phil. Um, one thing I, I don't really understand: Zion National Park has been working on their visitor use plan for over five years now. Yellowstone National Park has been studying its crowds for I don't know how many years. Why can't parks put in a temporary cap on how many visitors they'll allow in the parks now? while they work on developing these plans, and then when the plan comes out, you know, either increase capacity or reduce capacity, depending on what the, the plans um, suggest, rather than just, you know, opening the door to all comers, and the resources are being damaged, the staff is being strained. It just doesn't make sense to me, and, you know, I, I guess that's, I'm glad I'm not a park service manager. You know, going back to your question about the gateway communities, um, you know, parks long have been seen as the golden goose, and my position is that um, to put a dollar value on the parks like that, a dollar invested in national parks returns $10 to a local community is the wrong way to look at it. We should be supporting the national parks because of the wonders and the, the beauty and the resources and the outlet they provide for visitors. And perhaps if we looked at it that way, we'd realize that there needs to be a cap on the the visitation to, to better protect these places so they can, you know, remain strong and, and provide the outlets that we're searching for. You're, you're both saying similar things here about management and planning, which is that the communities are a part of the puzzle here for many, many reasons. And, and when you have a business model that's dependent on entering a park, then you're tied to that park um, in a way. And so let me just back up here for a second and talk about COVID uh, for a minute. When many parks had to close because they didn't have staff or you know, were concerned about not having all the precautions in place, folks went into surrounding public lands. And we saw areas like forest service lands, trash, human waste, lots of issues occur because People didn't know where the facilities were or they weren't open and people wanted to still go out for a hike but didn't know exactly um, what to do, let's just say. And so we've now learned that from what happened during COVID of how people will disperse if they feel like they need to. And so that's why these communities and other land management agencies should have an interest in doing larger scale planning when the economy is tied to the public lands. And so if a community outside of a park continues to build hotels, but the park is overrun, there's a lack of communication there. Someone's not communicating well. And so 
you know, these things are very, very tied to each other. And this is where the political conflict comes in. And this is why it gets so hard for park managers to be able to continue doing their planning is because let's face it, in Utah and places like that, the congressional delegation pushes back on the parks when they want to put something in place to try to manage visitors. And we just can't sustain that way. And the parks can't sustain that way. And growing this conflict sometimes is not going to be helpful for anyone. Because if you continue to build infrastructure outside of the parks and build this economy outside of the parks, but the park itself is not prepared for that influx of people. You know, that's why we need, in some cases, it's a park plan. And in some cases, it's a community and ecosystem plan that needs to take place. And that's really what needs to happen in places like Zion is it's got to be a more comprehensive plan where the business community has to be involved and the county has to be involved and the other land management agencies have to be involved. We, we really have to think about how people move through these places. No, you're absolutely right, Kristen. And um, what's going on in Rocky Mountain National Park right now, I think is something that we all should be watching. Yeah, they came up with a timed reservation uh, system to deal with the, the COVID and to reduce crowding. And now they're looking at the longer term. Um, they've heard numerous complaints from longtime park visitors about how congested the park is. And I'm not going back to Rocky Mountain because it's just crowds upon crowds upon crowds. We saw during the the height of the COVID crisis last year that um, the mayor of Estes Park was begging Burnett to close the park because they didn't want to endanger their community to COVID. And um, so hopefully the the surrounding communities um, at Rocky Mountain will weigh in and um, like I said, I think it'll be interesting to see what Rocky comes up with in terms of their long-range management plan. We're talking today with Christian Brengel from the National Parks Conservation Association and Phil Francis from the Coalition to Protect America's National Parks. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy the Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. Whether it be strategy, business planning, change management, board development, executive search, or diversity planning, Potrero Group is here to help. They mix a depth of experience in the parks and land space with a breadth of best practices from other industries. For more information or to schedule a preliminary conversation, go to potrerogroup.com, P-O-T-R-E-R-O, group.com. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, Foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the National Park System for decades to come. You can see their successes at gtnpf.org. The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It's an environmental learning center, training center, 
Conference Center, and Leadership Center, all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to raise private support to deepen everyone's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. We're back with Phil Francis from the Coalition to Protect America's National Parks and Kristen Brengo from National Parks Conservation Association. And we could go on and on and on about park visitation and crowding. And um, it's an interesting topic. And, and hopefully it'd be interesting to see some congressional hearings and see what kind of solutions come up. But one thing I do wonder about, as I mentioned at the start of the program, um, there hasn't been a Senate-confirmed director of the National Park Service since John Jarvis left back in January of 2017. What's the deal with that? How long do we have to wait for a, a nominee from the Biden administration? And any thoughts on that? Kristen, you're there in DC. I wish I could answer that question. Um, hopefully we'll see someone soon. At least that's some of the rumors that we're hearing right now. But, um, you know, it's um, it's been a trickle of nominees here in DC. So, Oftentimes, the way it works is that an administration starts with the cabinet secretaries and gets all of those folks through and then deputy secretaries. And we know they've gotten through some assistant secretaries as well. And so um, you may have seen uh, this morning that Tracy Stone Manning uh, had her vote on BLM director and um, it was a tie vote in committee. So perhaps we'll see Fish and Wildlife Service and Park Service come up next. But, um, you know, we're all waiting with bated breath to see who this nominee is going to be and, and really hope that we see someone soon. Phil, what are you hearing? I mean, it, it kind of strikes me as odd in, in that the, the President Biden was, was looked upon during the campaign and soon after he was uh, inaugurated that um, he was really pro-environment. We had the 30 by 30 program come out. It, it just seems like the Park Service ties into all those environmental efforts and yet the Park Service seems to be lagging in attention from the administration. Well, I, I agree with uh, Kristen. That's, I think what's going on is exactly what she described. I have no idea exactly why. I mean, I've heard rumors. I've heard that they're looking for someone inside the Park Service. I've been told that they're looking for someone outside the Park Service. You know, and so uh, I go back to what I've been told before, and that is those people who know aren't talking. So I really don't know what's going on, but I do know it's very important that uh, we get someone in place as soon as possible. It's just not acceptable to go 54 months without leadership. And people who are acting, I'm sure, are doing a great job and are doing the best they can, but it's different being acting than being the real thing, being the director. Knowing that you're going to be there, you know, for the upcoming few years at least. So uh, I look forward to seeing something soon. I hope that happens. 
Well, I've wondered how important having a Senate-confirmed director is. I mean, much of the Park Service seems to run pretty well on autopilot, if you will. I mean, the science goes on, the day-to-day ground operations go on, dealing with natural disasters. Um, Kristen, what's the MPCA's view on that? Well, there's a very big difference when there's a Park Service, a Senate-confirmed Park Service director in place. And, you know, what we saw during the Obama administration was an emphasis on you know, addressing climate change, park staffing, a number of issues. Um, And we were able to pass the centennial bill during the Obama administration. And a lot of that was working closely with John Jarvis at the time, who was the park service director to make sure that we got an endowment in place for the park service. So they had something to work with, some amount of money to work with in perpetuity for projects and programs. And, you know, we've incrementally grown the endowment little by little, but we need to continue to put pressure on Congress to grow things like that, that we've established. But, you know, in many cases, we wouldn't have certain programs and funding in place uh, without the advocacy of a strong Park Service director. Um, I think one of the other things that Jarvis did really well during his time as Park Service director was put forward more park sites that tell more stories of all the diversity of our country, whether it was Cesar Chavez or Harriet Tubman. He helped facilitate getting monuments designated that better reflect what our country looks like. And so that's what you get when you have strong leadership at the Park Service. And um, and we also had some really key wilderness decisions made at the time too, because of his leadership. So there's definitely a noticeable difference between having that leadership and not. And I'll say, as someone who's been doing this work for this advocacy work for over 20 years on behalf of the parks and public lands, you could tell there was no Park Service director during COVID. Park staff were screaming for help. They were worried about their families. And they had a really, really hard time convincing the Secretary of Interior at the time and other leaders to help them. And I would argue that if there were a Park Service director in place who had the heft of being a Senate confirmed director, someone would have been a a stronger advocate for the park staff. And that's what I worry about. One of the things that, you know, Makes me, made me worry in the last administration was who is making sure these folks are taken care of, the very people who are the stewards of these national parks, who's making sure they're taken care of and their families are. And I didn't feel it last administration all the time. And um, and so there's so many reasons why we need a person in place to, to um, manage the parks. Phil, you spent four decades in the trenches, as it were, with the Park Service, uh, a number of them as a superintendent of the Blue Ridge Parkway, I know, and acting superintendent, I believe, at Great Smoky Mountains. From inside the agency, how important is it to have a Senate-confirmed director? Oh, it's critically important. And we really, you know, the, the fact that the Senate-confirmed is important, and that hasn't always been true. And one of the reasons that was important is that we needed someone who was less political and more oriented toward managing the parks and having someone in place who understood parks and could lead parks so that the park's interest and the visitor's interest and the resources' interest and our employees' interest 
was primary. And so it's extremely important. Uh, I remember when Bob Stanton became director of the National Park Service, and he, he began by saying interpretation is important, and it is important. So he sort of set the agenda. He also said we need to have more people uh, come to our national parks, invite people to the parks, and we need to have greater diversity in the parks. And that meant a lot to the actions of the superintendents and the people below the superintendents and the people in regional and central offices and how they behaved and what they focused on. So it's critically important. The, uh, the four years prior to now um, could have been a lot better, that's for sure. You know, I'm curious, um, politics, you can't escape them in the federal government. And I think we've seen that with the National Park Service and how it's been used or not used or abused, depending on your political views. It, it is hard for a director and even superintendents to get away from politics. Does it make sense that we pull the Park Service out of the Department of Interior and make it a standalone agency, give it a board of directors, something like the Smithsonian Institution, let them select a director for, you know, maybe a six-year term as opposed to a four-year term, so it's not always concurrent with a political administration. Would that make the agency healthier from a, a, a management point? I mean, I don't, I don't know, because in some ways having that detachment might force it to be more of a philanthropic agency. When you're congressionally funded, you have this autonomy to manage to the law. And right now, the way that the parks are set up is that each park has an enabling legislation or monument proclamation that they work to, you know, that those are the standards they work towards. So every, every park, talks about the resources it is meant to protect. And then Congress provides the funding and the ability for the park service to protect those places. And in some ways, I think that model has been good in terms of setting an expectation and a standard with the public. When we lobbied on the Great Outdoors Bill and we talked about fixing parks and we talked about making sure that they were well protected and the infrastructure was, um, you know, the highest quality. That was a rallying point. We, we got over 330 uh, members of Congress um, to support that idea. And so it takes a lot of effort to lobby on this. I'm going to tell you, I've been doing it for such a long time, but I wonder if you didn't have a model where the federal government was funding the agency and instead, it was some outside board, if then it would become more of a philanthropic model. I just think that's something we should talk about more. But um, well, no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying I'm not saying divorce the federal funding from the agency. I'm just saying, take it out of a political Department of Interior that every four years, you could have a change of direction. And, you know, Interior could tell the Park Service, this is how we want things to be run, you know, not the way you've been running them. Um, so, so keep the federal funding intact and have the Park Service Director and the, the Board of Directors, if you come up with such a, a thing, continue to, to appear before Congress and tell them what the Park Service's needs are. But at least, you know, 
stop it from being a, a political um, ping pong ball. I'm not sure if that would solve the issue, but... Yeah, I've gone back and forth. I think it's important, though, that we have someone representing the National Park Service as part of the cabinet. And when the National Park Service is part of Interior, you've got the Secretary of the Interior going to the cabinet meetings. And maybe they don't talk about the National Park Service so much, but I think it's important to have them there. At other times, I have thought very strongly that we should be separate. But uh, someone said to me one time, you really can become a target when you're standing alone. So I don't know. I guess I'm leaning a little bit toward staying where it is, Kurt. Well, let me ask you this, Phil and Kristen. Um, as, as I've mentioned a couple times now, we've waited more than five years for Zion National Park to come up with its proposed visitor use plan. Um, and there are other parks that, that haven't come around with their carrying capacities yet. And as Kristen pointed out, there's a little a lot of political pressure in Utah for how the Park Service manages Zion and the other uh, four Mighty Five parks. Would having a Senate-confirmed director of the Park Service allow them to put pressure on Zion National Park to get that visitor use plan done, or would you still run into that political um, roadblock? Absolutely, it would change things. Yeah, I mean, I think there'd still be politics. It, it was the previous administration that helped put the brakes on on the Zion visitor use plan because there were people who were extremely sympathetic to the congressional delegation. And so, you know, a park service director who is deeply committed to the ideals of the National Park Service um, and knows that, you know, we need to do these things to better manage the park and to help the surrounding communities and such. Um, having a parks, a committed park service director who would make sure that these um, plans get in place is, is critical. And, you know, it's really hard to be a superintendent. I mean, I've never been one, but I feel for them. I have a lot of empathy for them that you need to know, you know, their chain of command has your back. You know, because the worst thing to do is to start working on a process and then not have the support for it. And so, and let's face it, I mean, Phil could say this better than I can because he was a superintendent, but things do go up the food chain to D.C. and does require some approval. And it would be nice to know that the people at the top of the food chain have your back. Yeah, and it would be even nicer if, if there was less of a requirement that things go up the food chain and more delegated authority goes to the superintendent with some type of oversight system. But uh, right now, that slows the whole process down. Yeah, and that really hasn't does. really changed that much from the last administration. I think, uh, as I understand it, uh, many things still go to Washington. We've been talking today with Phil Francis from the Coalition to Protect America's National Parks and Christian Bringle from the National Parks Conservation Association on crowding in the parks and the lack of a National Park Service Director confirmed by the U.S. Senate. We could go on for hours, I'm sure. Um, it's been great to sit down with you guys and get your thoughts, and we'll have to do it again soon, hopefully once we get a nominee for the National Park Service. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you very much. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. But we also hope you'll share your thoughts on what you've encountered in your travels through the national park system this year. Crowds or no crowds? 
long waits to enter a park or get to your destination, you can leave your comments at the bottom of this podcast on nationalparkstraveler.org. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. See you in the parks. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Park's Travelers podcast. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.